Oh, you hear that, man? Sounds like the bird of salesmanship. Gotta be. The rarest, sweetest of all the birds. They call him Jonathan Livingston Selgull. And he takes it sexy when he whores it to you. Oh, that bird of salesmanship, man. That Selgull. Get on his back and let's fly off to a place where I sell you shit. That's right, man. We got to hoard some merchandise here. Sometimes we got to pay the bills. Pay the bills at Smodco. Uh, Hollywood Babylon is a show that you could see live, man. Uh, and it's been down all month long because uh, Ralph took a mini vacay. That's stuff uh, to vacay. He's, he's got to enjoy his life, too. Get off his goddamn large balls on the show. He'll tell you, man. He's got massive fucking balls. And I've seen them. They're real fucking knee shooters. Uh, you can see Hollywood Babylon live. We're coming back with a vengeance in August. Coming hard, man, all over the walls and whatnot. Bring in one of those black lights. You'll be able to see it everywhere. August 4th, Hollywood Babylon with me and Ralph Garman at the John Lovitz Podcast Theater. Tickets at csmod.com or babylonkev.com. Uh, August 11th, the very next week, we're going to be at the Coach House in San Juan Capistrano, man. Me and Ralph Garman doing Hollywood Babylon. Tickets once again, babylonkev.com. Week after that, we're back at the John Lovitz Podcast Theater, August 18th. That show's 10 o'clock at the John Lovitz Podcast Theater. Tickets at seasbot.com. And August 25th, man, we wrap up the month of August with my Ottawa debut. That's right, never done a show in Ottawa, in Canada, and I'm bringing up Ralph Garman. The Garmy's coming with me, for heaven's sakes. August 25th at the Centerpoint Theater, right there in Ottawa, Ontario. Tickets once again at babylonkev.com or csmod.com. But what if you're like, hey man, Ralph Garman's one thing. I, I'm, I'm, God bless him and his big balls, but well, I, well, I want to see another show. I want to see you with you uh, with Scott Mosier. I want to see you uh, with Jason Mews. Well, don't worry, there are shows for you as well. August 17th, Portland, Oregon. Me and Mosier, Smodcast, live in front of people at the Aladdin Theater. August uh, 17th, 8 p.m. Go check those uh, tickets out at csmod.com as well. August 23rd, I'm going to be doing Solo Mish uh, up on stage in Orlando at the Orange County Convention Center, part of Star Wars Celebration 6, an evening with Kevin Smith, mostly going to be probably Star Wars oriented and whatnot. It's going to be a fun time. August 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Orange County Convention Center, Chapin Theater. Tickets at csmod.com. Very next day, I'm shooting up to Toronto, T-Dot, baby. T.Toronto, Toronto, Ontario, August 24th for Fan Expo Canada. Me and Muse are going to be doing Jay and Silent Bob Get Old. You can get tickets there for that at csmod.com. I'll lead you to another website, but uh, use csmod as your portal to get most of these tickets. Um, and don't forget, hey, Boston, way ahead in the fall, October 13th. I'm going to be coming out to you, man, to Wilbur Theater, an evening with Kevin Smith. Uh, it's kind of like a live version of a Reddit Ask Me Anything. Uh, October 13th, uh, 9.45 show. What a bizarre show time. Uh, right there on Tremont Street in Boston. Uh, evening with Kevin Smith at the Wilbur Theater. So October 13th, mark your calendar. You can go pick up tickets now if you want. Shy of that, uh, what else can I point you toward? Uh, Hulu Spoilers, brand new episode of Spoilers this week. So you can peep that out. Uh, Monday morning, uh, It's as always, brand new episode of Spoilers uh, only on Hulu. 
And that's about it, man. That's I'm done whoring. Now I'm going to pop off and let you listen to uh, the dulcet tunes of one of our many smod co-artists as they uh, just tickle your ear pussy to orgasmic delight. that information please choose your words carefully because she shouted I'm fixing to come and to me that was adorable and hilarious and when you burst out laughing at exactly that moment in somebody else's experience you need to get a new groupie And this was going through my mind as my current groupie was coming toward me with my coffee in her hand and she was on the phone and the woman from Occupy LA who was about to give me my stage time was coming from the other side and I went into a panic and I said, I'd like you to meet my assistant. (laughs) So I needed to get a new groupie. (laughs) And nobody was answering my Craigslist ad. So I was already having a bad day. And I was sitting at my desk writing a sketch for a radio show for which I do not get paid because I continue to become incrementally more famous while continuing to make incrementally no money. (laughs) Why am I talking about this? Oh, right. So (laughs) it was very frustrating working on this thing. I had Dar Williams blasting on the stereo and I was weeping and writing the least funny comedy sketches in the history of radio and hating myself and really feeling as though every aspect of my career is punishment for my own lack of negotiating skills and business savvy. And I finally set aside that task and wrote this piece with which I would like to start tonight's performance. (laughs) An ancient Zen parable that I wrote three weeks ago. (laughs) I call it an ancient Zen parable that I wrote three weeks ago. Master So emerged from his chambers, greeted the dawn, greeted the dew, and then found scuff marks on the flat slate tiles of the courtyard. He smiled to himself and then adopted a look of stern disapproval and went to the backyard where the young novices were doing their calisthenics. He interrupted their exercises and said, I have asked you not to skateboard in the courtyard. (laughs) Yet there are scuff marks. Would anyone like to tell me anything about this? And one of the boys said, I'll bet it was Mark. He's skateboarding all the time. And the master said, no, no. I wasn't asking you to point fingers, but it occurs to me that I was asking something of you that I should not expect from people of your age. 
Instead, just meet me in the courtyard when you're done here. And he maintained his look of stern disapproval until he got back to the courtyard where he smiled to himself, sat down on the steps, and began reading a mystery novel. <laughs> 42 minutes later, the kids emerged from their morning exercises. They came to the courtyard. They found the master sitting on the steps reading. He had set up for them buckets of soapy water and stiff brushes, and they set to work cleaning the slate. And after an hour and a half, one of the boys went up to Master So, and he said, I don't think this is fair. And the master said, you're all doing the same thing. And the boy said, yeah, I didn't skateboard in the courtyard. I didn't try to tell you who did skateboard in the courtyard. I did nothing wrong. Why am I being punished? And the master said, you did nothing wrong? And the boy said, no. And the master said, then you're not being punished. You're just cleaning a floor. <laughs> the master returned to his reading, and the boy returned to his task. At some point while I was writing this piece, my wife returned home from wherever she had been. <laughs> Pulled a Stevie Smith book off the shelf, began reading, and then realized that she could hear Dar Williams from upstairs and that that meant I was probably weeping while I worked. <laughs> so she came halfway up the stairs so she could peer at me through the banisters. She said, how are you doing? And I thought about saying, not well. <sighs> I need a new groupie. <laughs> and my sketch isn't funny, and I'm not getting paid for it, and... I'm sorry I'm not making any money. But I remembered a moment when I was about to test for my very first black belt. I was just a couple of months away, and I was going to every class I could get to, even when I didn't want to. And one evening, I decided, just go to the class. You can take it easy on yourself if you have to. And I walked into the studio, and my master, Master Lim, said, How are you doing, eh? <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm tired. And he adopted a look of stern disapproval. <laughs> and he pulled me into his office. And he said, No. There are you, high bow. Soon to be black bow. <laughs> you never know, tired. <laughs> Hmm. You say, I am tired. Now I am worried. Now you go easy. Oh, no, I'm tired. Now I'm worried. Oh, and everybody down a little bit. Not so good. <laughs> you say to me, I feel great. I go, oh, good. No worry to you. I'm a little better. You're a little better. Everybody a little better. Change world. Little bit. <laughs> you soon to be black belt. Already high belt. Role model. <laughs> Somebody say, how are you? Always. I feel good. I feel great. <laughs> Everybody scared. Everybody tired. Everybody have enough weakness of their own. You share your strength. So I said to my wife, I feel good. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just wrote a piece. I think it's strong. <laughs> she said, okay. Because I worry when you're listening to Dar Williams. And I said, no, I'm fine. I was just cleaning a floor. <laughs> she knew that had to be code because I was sitting at my desk and my office is carpeted. <laughs> so I just changed the music over to the Mountain Goats because that always makes me happy. One of my favorite things about the Mountain Goats, by the way, lead singer and songwriter John Darnielle sometimes performs alone. And when he performs alone, he still goes on stage and says, Good evening, we are the Mountain Goats. <laughs> <laughs> so I switched it over to the Mountain Goats, and I went back to my desk, and I was aware of my wife, still worried, standing at the stairs watching me. And finally, she said the most reassuring thing she could possibly say at that moment. She said, you know... If I had time to do the job, I'd answer the Craigslist ad. <laughs> and then she returned to her reading, and I returned to my task.
everyone. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. In the market for a change of scene I know what you need Or if you prefer to be familiar You could stay with me But if you want to sit and talk I know a spot, we'll take a walk Let me show you what I've got Come play with me now Though habit is mandible Habit will end it all Easier to keep along Feel the beat, sing the song Hey, don't slow it down Size it up Hello everyone, it's August 2nd. That's Logan Heftel with Not Now. I'm breaking in early today because... I've got a nice long interview recorded uh, with my friend Dennis Merzel, also known as Zen Master Genpo Roshi. And uh, so I just wanted to talk a few minutes before we jumped into the interview. Hope everyone's fine. Yes, it's August. I know another month is here. It is uh, warm here in Southern California. It's a gorgeous day. I hope it's been a gorgeous day wherever you are. And if you're behind us in time, I hope it's going to be a gorgeous day. And if you're ahead, <laughs> it's already August 3rd. Oh, that's crazy. So, uh, yeah, the Olympics are going on this week, uh, which is uh, crazy, fun, wonderful, uh, lovely. Uh, I um, <laughs> I interviewed Greg Proops earlier this week for my Sirius XM show, which is going to be on this Sunday on Raw Dog at 7 p.m. Eastern. And uh, I, I could never do in any way uh any comparison to what how greg proops described the opening ceremonies uh i may have to grab a little snitch of that uh interview just to play for you guys uh see because i'm sure most of you don't get serious xm but uh it was just fantastic but i hope you're enjoying the olympics it's exciting i love it i'm like an addict i'm you know like when the tour de france is here i watch it every day and when the olympics is on uh, it gives me an excuse not to do much of anything in the world except absolutely what I have to do. And that list gets very short, uh, which is interesting, isn't it? You know, all that stuff we think we have to do. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's great. Um, what else is going on? Uh, next week, I think we're going to do a, uh, call-in show, which I'm excited about. And um, the following week, we're probably going to do another little round robin, round table or octagon table, as we call it here. I'm alone today in my podcast uh, studio, which is weird for me. I don't have my wingman, Logan. That's why I played a little Logan song. I'm missing him, clearly. And I've already done my interview, so I don't have my guest with me. So I'm kind of here all alone. It's like empty space. And uh, it's just me and you and hanging out. Um and uh, I, I uh, you know, I thought I would jump right into this uh, this interview. I'll give you a little context, and I talk a little bit about it in the interview. But I've been uh, following Gempo Roshi and his teachings now, I guess, since about two thousand and four, 
and uh, he has this process called Big Mind, and he takes kind of uh, Zen philosophy and Zen practice, and he's mixed it with Gestalt therapy, a, a form of Gestalt therapy called voice dialogue. And uh, if you're not familiar with voice dialogue, it's this process where you where you allow different parts of yourself to have a voice. Uh, and if you've ever been in therapy, I'm sure your therapist has done this with you before. It's like, well, let's talk to that little girl inside of you. Or, um, you know, if you're in a dream, you know, let's, let's talk to the old man on the couch. What does he have to say? So it's about letting all the parts of the psyche talk. And, and he uses it in service of not just like different parts of the psyche, but he uses it in service of, you know, let's talk to the enlightened mind, the mind of the Buddha. So we talk a little bit about that. Uh, but also in this interview today, um, Gempo has gone through a huge change in his life uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, it was revealed that he had been having an affair with one of his students and he was married. And uh, this, of course, devastated uh, everyone around him, his students, uh, his wife and, and, and the whole community and has completely changed his life. And he was very forthcoming today and, and wanted to come and talk about his own struggle uh, in being a human and also being this, you know, exonerated Zen master at the same time. It's, it's a unique, it's a unique glimpse into uh, the life of someone like this, uh, who's just an ordinary man from Long Beach who became a Zen master and, um, and then become became an ordinary man from Long Beach again. I think he would pretty much like that description. Um, and of course, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about uh, on this podcast my own struggle with um, shadow, living in the shadow of fame, and and my own craving attention, and ha- you know, counting my Twitter followers, and then also. Uh, walking away from all of that um, in some way. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, last week, I decided over the last few years, I've got, you know, I have all my dad's stuff, basically. And that means all of his awards and all of his cool prints and artwork. And I have pictures of him with Groucho Marx and just really cool stuff. I have his Mark Twain prize, things like that. And um, and it was those things were all around my house. And I, I proudly showed them around my house and wanted to share them with my friends and people got a kick out of them and I get a kick out of them. But last week, um, something shifted in me and I decided it was time to take dad's stuff down and uh, put it away in the archives for now and, and hopefully find a permanent home for it somewhere at some point. Are you listening, Smithsonian? So uh, I'm shifting too with my relationship with fame and certainly my relationship with my father's fame. It's a daily dance. It truly, truly is. And uh, it's it's one I think it'll be a lifetime dance for me because this is the quote-unquote karma that I've chosen in this life. This is the path for me to walk and uh and i'm and i'm finding myself walking it so i i i really enjoy this glimpse into gempo's struggle with being a human being a celebrity in a world that you're not allowed to be a celebrity in which is the spiritual world and yet still being treated like a rock star and then having a rock star moment in some way um oh you know isn't it beautiful to be human and um and i'm and i'm not making light of of course the the, the pain that certain people have gone through because of this the people who believed in roshi who believed who gave their life up for him and and their their you know to to be his student and to really follow him as a student and of course his family i'm sure is still healing from this and i and i hope their hearts and and minds heal from this and they grow and they they become full of joy and bliss at some point 
So um, here's my here's my talk with Roshi. It's about 70 minutes. Uh, enjoy. We talk a little bit about his background and, and, and what it took to become a Zen master and uh, a little bit about his teaching, my experience with it. And uh, and then we talk about uh, his fall from grace. Uh, so uh, enjoy. I'll be back after the interview. Well, uh, everyone, I'm very excited today to have a, uh, a sp- kind of a special guest here. Uh, it's not every day that a person gets to uh, have um, someone, a mentor or a teacher, uh, come and hang out with them, uh, at least, you know, in the rarefied era of Zen, with the Zen world, you know, the, the Zen teacher is always up on the pedestal at the end of the room. Uh, but today, I, I, I have the pleasure of having my friend and teacher, uh, who goes by two names these days. Uh, D- Dennis Merzel is his born name. And then his uh, given name as a teacher is Gempo Roshi. And uh, I-, I met uh, Gempo Roshi through uh, Ken Wilbur uh, years ago. Not that I know Ken Wilbur, but uh, I was uh, from afar studying Ken Wilbur's integral philosophy, as I still do. And uh and he had on this guy who had this interesting process called Big Mind. And uh, being a person who's uh, studied Jungian psychology, um, as you all know, I've got my master's in Jungian depth psychology. Uh, this person was doing gestalt work with voices. And yet he was a Zen master. And he was talking about things about enlightenment and things like that. And um and I, I listened to this 20-minute tape where he walked Ken Wilbur and a few of his friends from what they call just everyday kind of regular mind straight into the mind of the Buddha, big mind. And I, I walked myself along in this process as he took them through it. And I had uh, an awakening. I had a moment of, holy shit, this is what they've all been talking about, <laughs> that thing. Uh, I experienced, uh, the mind of the Buddha, this eternal mind, this sense of no body, no, no mind, no thinker, no, th- no thoughts. Uh, and for a person whose mind has been racing my whole life, it was, uh, an interesting space to be in. And I thought, wow, this guy's doing something really interesting and different. Hmm. So I, uh, began studying and reading and and got some of his his CDs and then started sitting with him when he came to Southern California or California in general and having the experience uh in person with him and you know with 50 to 100 other people in a room profound experience so i'm honored and thrilled to have him here today welcome thank you Kelly it's a pleasure and uh we're here today for for a bunch of reasons one of which he's in town here um this weekend at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel uh, teaching for five hours, big mind process to uh, a, a group of us, a room full of us. I'll be there. I'm excited to sit down and do some big mind since it's been a while for me. And uh, and also we're here because uh, Gempo Dennis has been through a lot in the last year and a half of his life. And uh, it's the kind of stuff that uh, I talk about a lot here, dealing with our um, egos, dealing with uh, fame, uh, dealing with projections, uh, dealing with uh, thinking we know what we want, and then we get it. And is it really what we want and all of that? So we'll get to that in a minute. But we're just going to do a little 
a little general uh, understanding. So you guys, you listeners who aren't obviously Buddhists or Zen teach or Zen students, or even maybe I know most of you are seekers out there, even you atheists. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about just uh, Genpo's process and where he's been and how he came to be. And so you had uh, 40 years ago, you were here in LA, you were at the LA Zen Center. Right. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. Yeah, please. Say that the workshop this Saturday from noon to five uh, is really open. Oh, good. It, 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 it's not a closed uh, uh, workshop. It's wide open. Um, there are still many seats left available. Wonderful. For people. So it's noon to five, as you said, at the Beverly Wilshire uh, on Wilshire Boulevard. Yeah, and you can always uh, send me an email here at uh, contactkellycarlin at gmail.com, and I can forward you guys the uh, registration material for that. It's... Well, well, we'll talk more about the process and, and how profound it is. Uh, so, yes, thank you for that. That's great. And, oops, I'm always doing that with my table. I didn't realize just now during your introduction that uh, you had listened to that tape mm -hmm. that I did with Ken Wilbur and uh, David Data and uh, Colin uh, Big, um, Bigsby or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, John Kessler. That was about now eight years ago. Yeah, wow. And uh, it was a very interesting taping. I know this is not what you wanted to talk about. No, we can I talk just, about anything. But uh, yeah, so I was invited uh, by Ken to come to his place in Boulder and his loft, actually in Denver, and just to share a little bit of the Big Mind process, which I had just uh, come up with in '99, and mm. this was like 2003. Mm hmm. And um, Ken said, well, you know, I would really appreciate you doing the process on these folks and let me just witness it. I'd just rather watch it. But if you don't mind, I'll just tape it. And he took out a little, you know, digital yeah, it's tape. Yeah, it's a shitty recording. <laughs> just a little digital tape, you know. Well, you know, thousands of people yes, have openings. Uh, totally. Thousands. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, like, it blew my mind because I was just doing it with these four or five people. Right. And within two minutes, I think, I, I can't believe it was longer than that, Ken just dove in. He said, do you mind if I join? And just <laughs> head first right into the pool, you know. Uh, and it was a very profound experience for a lot of people. But this is the first time I heard that you listened to that and you had an opening. I did. So many people had openings yeah. just listening to that recording. Yeah. And and when we talk about an opening, uh, for those uh, who, uh, who don't know what that is. Like me. <laughs> I don't know what the hell it is either. <laughs> exactly. But it's this thing that, you know. That you don't know what it is. Yeah. That you read about a lot. Yeah. And then you even have one and you still don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's very difficult to grasp and it's very difficult to communicate. Yeah. There, yeah. it literally is. There are no yeah. words. Yeah. Because it's not a language of it. And it, it may be because it's a non experience. Mm. And maybe we, always have experiences and it's a moment where there's no experiencer and no experience and we don't know what to do with that but it changes our life it transforms my first one was february 71 and my life's never been the same since yeah you know? yeah it's and it's that thing that um even the moment you have it it's still elusive yes <laughs> We're getting very zen here right away with you people. <laughs> Sorry about that. 
You go ahead, take the take the reins, and I'll follow. <laughs> yeah, no. So, so you had your first opening awakening forty years ago. Um, I I think I remember the story. You were in the desert somewhere. Right. Yeah, Mojave Desert, right here in California. Yeah, out at Jawbone Canyon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you were just minding your own business. Well, kind of. I really was. <laughs> I went out with two friends. Uh, been having a rough time. I was teaching school, lifeguarding in Long Beach, teaching in Long Beach, and mm. uh, went out there for the weekend, a three-day holiday, and had this profound opening on, I think we got there Friday, and had this on Friday night, mm. Friday afternoon, something mm. like that. And and so how did you know you had had what I mean, this is, I didn't know what I had. Right, you didn't know what you had. I just know something knew. happened. Yeah, exactly. I just knew something very profound has happened. Mm-hmm. My life took a hundred and eighty degree mm-hmm. about face. I mean, I was going like a locomotive, full tilt. I was twenty six years old. Just stopped working out for the Olympics. Uh, I think two years prior, mm. um, in water polo, and was teaching full time. I was. In grad school at USC, uh, I was lifeguarding full time mm. uh, for six months of the year. Mm. So I mean, my schedule was full. I just got married and divorced, and um, yeah, something happened. Uh, the heavens opened up. I don't know what to say. It became yeah. one with the cosmos. Yeah, you know, one with the universe. And uh, Dennis Merzel just dropped off. Right. You know, and it was so profound. It was like reading the best book, hearing the best music, watching the best, you know, movie, Mm -hmm. and wanting to communicate that with everybody because your life has just changed. Yeah. In a a much nicer, more profound, deeper way. And what became very critical at that point for me was – investigating who am I, Mm. Mm -hmm. that question, who Mm. am I really, Mm -hmm. and sharing that, the beauty of not knowing, Mm. because, you know, all my life I knew who I was, right? You know, we know. We've all been told. Yeah, (laughs) and we've made it up, we've created this sense of self, right, you know, and we know where we're going and what we're doing, even when we don't, Mm. you know, we know who we are. And all of a sudden, that was all gone, mm. you know, and it was like a door had opened mm-hmm. and a whole new world opened up and it was really beautiful and profound and deep and uh, meaningful. And all the all that craving for name and fame, which I did a lot of, you mm-hmm. know, because I really wanted to go to the Olympics. Yeah, that's huge. And... Uh, Water polo and swimming were my life mm. from 14 on, you mm. know. Uh, seeking financial gain, security, all the things that we see, right. just all all of a sudden seemed kind of meaningless, mm. rather empty. Right. And what took on new meaning was life. Huh. I mean, life, living, being, right. you know, right. rather than doing. <laughs> right, right. And uh, becoming. It was all a matter of being. Right. Rather than becoming. So how did you, were you already studying Buddhism? Did you no. Already, so you didn't have any connection to Eastern? Nothing. I knew so nothing. How, so, you know, because this always fascinates me. I was talking to someone, I was describing it to someone yesterday. Oh, I was on Jay Moore's podcast last night, and he's mm-hmm. converted to Catholicism. And I was talking about how these moments, how 
people frame it differently or can frame it mm-hmm, differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, and certainly Ken Wilber talks a lot about this. It depends on kind of your, your framing or where you are, kind of what meme you're in. But, you know, uh, if I'm assuming that if you'd been like a, a or maybe not even like you could have thought that like Jesus visited you or something, you know, because it is that Christ consciousness thing that they talk about. So how did, how did you end up at the LA Zen Center then? Like why, I mean, were you raised? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's like what? Yeah, I was raised a Buddhist. Yeah, right. You know, you were. No, I was a. I was raised. My mother was an atheist. Mm-hmm. My father was agnostic. Oh, okay. Jewish, you know, background. Right, right. right. My dad was born in Poland. Mm-hmm. I even visited the house that his father built. Wow. In Poland, 1983. Kind of an amazing story. Uh, if you ever want to hear an mm-hmm. interesting story, the hairs on my back stand up every time I tell it. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So. You know, and sports was my thing. That was my religion. Sports was your religion. That was my religion. Yeah. You know, not religion, but sports. Yeah, yeah. And um, so this opening, and I started to question what mm. happened. Mm-hmm. What just happened to me? Yes. You know, I go back to <laughs> school, and everything's different. My life simplified. Uh, everything made sense. Everything was clear. Mm. It was like coming out of a deep, deep pea soup. Mm. You know, like mm. I'd been living in this pea soup and all of a sudden I emerged, mm. you know, into thin air. Right. You know, clear, thin air. And I started to study everything. You know, I started studying Judaism, my roots. I started studying uh, Christian mysticism. You know, I started Western psychology. I read, you know, Jung and Freud and Maslow and and. You know, all of them, right? Uh, Fritz Perls, I mean, right, all of them. Right. I had started actually uh, Gestalt therapy in 69, right after my father died. Mm-hmm. My father died in 68, and by 69, I was studying Gestalt. And um, Zen just seemed for me, for me, you mm. know, it's not for everybody, but yeah. it just resonated with me. And particularly the sayings and the teachings of the old masters. Mm. Just, I read those and for some peculiar reason, they just were totally clear and made sense. Wow. And, you know, they're paradoxes. Totally. You know? Yes. Like the one, the, <laughs> the sound of, uh, one hand clapping, you know, right. or, you know, what is moo or right. what is your original face before your parents were born? It all made sense. Uh huh. It was like really clear. Wow. And everything else I read seemed to beat around the bush, didn't seem as clear. Mm-hmm. So I was really... You were looking uh, for the pure essence of the... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I was drawn to Zen. Yeah. But then I went off into the mountains, and I lived as a hermit for a year, uh, chopping wood, carrying water, you know, the <laughs> old thing. The yes. well went out, uh, not the well, but the pump of the well went out within the first month. I was there. So I really literally had Did to carry take water. two buckets of water every day up the stream, one for washing, one for drinking. Mm. You know, those days you could still drink out of the <laughs> Right. The you, stream. Can still, you could still drink the water on you planet still, Earth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you could How wash charming it. and quaint. <laughs> and I only had an axe. So I spent most of my day chopping wood. Wow. Because I lived, you know, there was no heat. It was a right. non-insulated cabin that... A uh, gentleman from the University of Santa Barbara allowed me to stay at for almost a year. And I meditated four or five hours a day, and that's what I did. Wow. You know? Wow. So that was 71 to 72. Yeah. And and so then you, you became, you folded into an existing order 
at here in LA, the, the Zen Center. Exactly. I, and, with and, a teacher. Yeah, I had teacher. this opening or experience uh, in March mm-hmm. while I was out there at my cabin where I realized I needed a teacher, finally. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, my tendency is to inflate my ego, and we'll probably get into that. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, you know, as an athlete, you basically have a big ego, you know? Yeah. And, and if you're fairly decent, you either squelch it or you've got it, you know? Now, and what what is that about an athlete's ego? What is it necessary to be a well, superior I think you, athlete? I think what's necessary is complete confidence in yourself. Yes. You know, you have to have confidence that you can do it. Yeah. You know, uh, psyching out, you know? Uh, means that you're losing your confidence. It means that you're letting uh, your mind kind of eat at you and get uh, to you, you uh-huh. know? And so you've got to keep building yourself up, you know, and believing in yourself that I can do this. And we, you know, we were unbeatable in 1963 at Long Beach City College, just a two year college. Mm-hmm. Um, we went, it's never been done before. It was, uh, never was done before. Never has been done since. We went undefeated against all the four year universities, including the junior colleges too. Wow. Undefeated. Mm. Uh, so you really have to set your mind mm-hmm. at winning, being victorious, you know, mm-hmm. and that you can do it. Right. So you psych yourself up, not right. down. <laughs> you know? So you build yourself up. So you inflate yourself. You don't play water polo with a flat ball. Right, you know? right, You right. use a very inflated ball because you can't grasp it unless it's pretty right. inflated, right? Right, So I did the same with my ego. Right. So I realized in a moment of... Maybe a moment of egolessness uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> that I was ready for a teacher. Hmm. I'd been doing this for exactly a year. Mm-hmm. I started February of 71. This was March of 72. And it was, Dennis, get yourself to a Zen master, uh-huh. to a living, embodied, enlightened being. And within several days, I was face-to-face with my teacher, Maizumi Roshi, and his teacher, Koryu Roshi, uh-huh. from Japan. I hopped a train, a freight, <laughs> you know, uh, actually the flat car, uh, down from San Luis Obispo, down to L.A. Uh, and, um, yeah, by Friday, this was, I think, Tuesday, by Friday I was meeting Maizumi Roshi. So, uh, and so this this will this will help us get into the kind of the, the bigger conversation we're going to have today. So there's this this thing about teachers in the Eastern tradition, which are it's essential to have a guru or a teacher. Uh, there's a transmission that happens where the teacher, uh, you know, gives you the teachings and also some sort of energetic energy. <laughs> energetic psychic transmission happens uh, through that. And here in the West, you know, we're a bunch of independent, uh, autonomous egos walking around going, hey, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And here you were this uh, superior athlete <laughs> who, yes, had this awakening. Um, and now you were going to be in a relationship with a teacher. How was that for you just culturally to walk into that situation where, you know, your job at that point is to surrender to this person? And, and give yourself over to them. Well, you know, you mentioned the athletics, and I don't think I've ever talked about it in this way before, so this is a nice opportunity. It actually was great preparation. Hmm. Because if you're going to be a superior athlete, if you're going to be on a winning team, first of all, you have to play as a team. Yes. And our strength was we actually went up against much better teams, 
and certainly better individuals. I mean, we beat UCLA, Stanford, USC, uh, Cal State Long Beach. I mean, all of them. Mm -hmm. You name them, Berkeley, we beat them all. Foothill Junior College and everything. In fact, in the state championships against Foothill, our fastest swimmer was slower than their slowest swimmer. <laughs> wow. In the pool. Six people in the pool, you know, whatever. So there was, so there's this, there's this team consciousness that happens. Absolutely. Right. But you also surrender to your coach. Right. You do submit to your this coach. This is true. You right. You absolutely have to. You know, you do what the coach says. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you hate it. Sometimes you're angry. Sometimes you do it in spite of the coach. Mm -hmm. I mean, we won our, we were down in the last game, state championship. We were, what's the next last game? We were down six to one. Mm. And our coach said, I quit. You guys just are sad. Sorry, right? Mm -hmm. You know, after all the time we put in and everything, mm -hmm. and you're losing six to one and you've been undefeated all year. Mm. And he just walked out of the, the pool, mm. walked away mm. from the pool. And I, I was the captain. I said, listen, guys, we're not going to go down like this. Mm -hmm. Well, we ended up tying mm. six six, mm. and then in overtime beat them seven to six. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. you you sometimes you hate the coach. Sure. Yeah. You know, just like you do your spiritual teacher. Right. Sometimes you just hate them. Yeah. But in the end, you do do what they say. You do surrender. You do acknowledge. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is, even if I don't like what you're telling me, I, I hate it. Yeah. I hate you. Okay. But it's I, a, I submit. But there's, a, and I can relate because, you know, working on my, my live show with my director, Paul, there were times where he, he, he knew where I could go and I didn't know where I could go yet. And it was very clear to him and it was very unclear to me. And I, I did have to surrender and submit to his vision of it. That's right. And it is. I'm backstage. I'm crying. I'm gnashing of teeth. I'm, oh, fuck you. I don't want to go out there and right. do that this way. And, and, and yet, uh, boy, the break, you know, the other side of it when you let go right. and say, okay, well, maybe I don't know everything. Right. Yeah. And that's all it is. Yeah. I mean, you just hit the nail on the head. Mm. Maybe I don't know everything. Mm. You know, like, right. how hard is that? Well, it's pretty hard. It is pretty hard. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I've been lying to myself for 40 years yeah. or maybe deceiving myself even, you know. Yeah. Uh, maybe I really don't know shit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. To admit that. I mean, you can say it sounds like, well, no big deal, right? Mm -hmm. Uh but to really listen to somebody because we can't see ourselves. Yeah. You know, we're all blind. Yeah. Blind to ourselves. Yeah. And to stay open and to listen and to hear what somebody else perceives. Yeah. You know, and not say, you know, put up a wall or a barrier and say, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. And just say, well, maybe there's some wisdom here. Yeah. Maybe there's something I'm not seeing. Yeah. So it's hard to do. Yeah. But uh, the sports, the athletics, was, I think, a great introduction. Yeah, that's... Plus the discipline. Right. My mm. teacher, my Zoom Roshi, used to say, you know, Dennis, or Gempo, he called me, or Sensei, he said, you'll never realize how much good all that swimming and water polo training has done for you. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I sat. Yeah. I mean, I sat and sat and sat. Ten hours a day, sometimes nine months of the year. Wow. You know, and the other days were four hours a day. So, you know, and most people, you know, when they think about Zen meditation and Buddhist meditation, that's what they think about this sitting meditation that goes on. Sure. And these people are sitting on this cushion and 
and they're waiting for enlightenment or, you know, what are they doing? And of course, when I started sitting meditation, I didn't, I, you know, I thought, you know, oh, you sit and your mind clears and isn't this comfortable? <laughs> and the complete opposite happens. You sit and the whole mind comes walking in. Mm. Every character, every version of reality comes walking walking in, sets up shops, leaving crap all over the place. The living room's very messy by the time they leave. And you think, wow, that was horrific. <laughs> Can't wait to do that tomorrow for 25 minutes or so. And um, my very first meditation teacher, she was teaching us beginning meditation. And she said, well, if you've come here for peace of mind, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then she always said, you know, give it 10 years and let me know how, how you're doing in 10 right. years. Right. Because something does happen eventually when, when you sit. She's right too. Ten years. Yeah, it's a minimum. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I always used to think, oh, ten years, I can't do anything for ten years. But uh, ten years, uh, things do shift. Uh, but but see, so but this gives me my question too, which is, so you, so then, and we're going to skip ahead a little bit. You know, you you became part of the Zen Center. You were a teacher. You went up the ranks there. Um, and eventually, you went from Sensei, which is like, uh, is that like a student? Teacher. Teacher, but it's just teacher. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you were teaching classes right away, I understand. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you became, you know, one of the teachers there. And then you go to Roshi. When did, when did the switch from sensei to Roshi? Well, okay. So I started there in 72. Right. And became a monk in 73. Right. Okay. So that's going to be 40 years this mm. next year. Mm. And then received what's called Dharma Transmission in 1980 mm. uh, and became a sensei. So a sensei means, at least in our lineage, our tradition, a teacher who has received the transmission of the Buddha. Okay. Okay. Which goes from directly from Chakyamuni Buddha through all the 80, lineage of the teachers, right? Ancestors, and then I'm the 81st. Okay. So that happened 1980. And then 1996, I received Inca which is uh, what we call final seal of approval uh-huh. as a Zen master. I see. So that happened 16 years later. Wow. And all told, 25 years after I started. Wow. So it was a, it was a journey, or as we talked about at breakfast, a trip. <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite a trip. <laughs> the whole thing, 40 years, you know, we could call it a journey, or we could just say the whole thing's been one big trip. Yeah, and, and, and there's this, you know, interesting thing between... Uh, that original opening you had where you had this experience and, and then I'm guessing after having that experience, that, that kind of thing, d- did it come and go? That, ex- that kind of opening, that kind of sense of, you know, you know, oneness or what some okay, people call well, that it. That particular experience lasted a year. Okay. All right. In so fact, th- it lasted a little over a year until I got to the Zen Center in Los Angeles. <laughs> A year and a month later, uh, I was I was in that state experience for mm. a whole time that whole wow. year. Yeah, I can't pretty imagine. profound, pretty amazing, pretty high. Yeah, uh, and uh, and right. you, but you were alone up in a mountain. I was too, alone so for the prob- most part. Yeah, for the most right. part. I mean, right. I did for a few months. I mean, that whole summer before I went to the cabin, I still taught school. Right, and then oh, I okay. that whole winter or whatever season. Right. Fall, no spring, and then I went. I went throughout Canada and Washington and Oregon, and I mm. just hitchhiked all over and did some very long fifty-mile backpack trips. Mm. You know, up mm. through Glacier and, and 
Uh, Waterton. So you were still encountering, you know, you weren't like holed up exactly. in a cave somewhere or anything no, like that. No, not until September. Right. From September to end of June or so, okay. I held up in a cabin and I was pretty isolated. And, and then you show up at a Zen center and it all goes away. Then I showed up at a Zen center <laughs> and it all went away. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, my foot, fit, feet hit the uh, ground. Right, right. And uh, yeah, I was brought back to a lot of hard work mm. and taught how to meditate. I mean, the way I was meditating, I just sat, right? Right. Find out in 1986, well, I was doing it right to begin with. <laughs> just sit. Right. Because they gave me all these Things. exercises to do, you yeah. know, like count your breath, follow your breath, do koans. You know, I went through koan study from 73 to 1979, you know, that period of six years, uh, doing the koans. Um, and all very interesting. I learned a lot, incredible, you know, yeah, incredible yeah. stuff. But it was all, in a way, uh, a trip. Yeah. And in 86, and again in 2011, I started to realize what a trip. Right, right. And as we shared at breakfast again, uh, I realized that several times in that journey, again in 94, so there's been at least three very big times where I realize, wait a minute, I'm just an ordinary guy. Yeah. Now, for most listeners, I've learned to realize that a lot of people say, well, it's a big deal. We all know that. Right. Just ordinary guys. Well, when you have a profound opening that you're the Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the awakened one. Right. And then you realize, oh, I'm just an ordinary guy. It's profound. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. You mean? Truly falling I'm, off the mountain. Yeah, I'm just like everybody else. Yeah. And, um. But see, this is so, what's so beautiful is because, um, and, and, and if anyone's a Zen student out there and just the little bit that I've studied, it's the hardest thing for me to wrap my mind around, which I guess your mind's not supposed to wrap around it. Or can't. Or can't, is that, you know, having, having had my own experiences of opening and then and holding that and then trying to fit back into the human life the ordinary human life and you have to deal with sensations and cravings and people and politics and all this kind of love stuff. life and love life and family and kids yes. and jobs and careers yeah and and, and mortgages and 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 I'm always can you know feel the tension of that always, right. um, and and really do question: um, Is it possible to live the bodhisattva life? I just don't know. But uh, but we'll we'll get there in a minute. So so you you ended up uh, creating your own uh, uh, institution where you te- where you became the teacher. Uh, the Zen master of is it Kanzion? Kanzion. Kanzion. Mm-hmm. And uh and then in 99 you started working with this new idea called what you called the big mind process which uh f- f- tell us just a little bit of a nutshell about what how did that come to be and what is big mind like okay. what was the sh- what was the difference between what you started teaching and what you had been doing Okay in a way we can say the big mind process went back to the original awakening I had in 71 mm. which was uh, somehow everything dropped off mm-hmm. and all the boundaries and the barriers dropped off and just a oneness with all creation with all beings with all things animate and inanimate you right. know? just a oneness um, an interconnectedness interdependence with all 
creations. So that happened, and my mind expanded into a big mind, big heart. Because in Japanese and Chinese, they do not make a distinction between heart and mind. Hmm. It's the same word, mm-hmm. okay? Shin in Japanese, chin in Chinese. And so there's no distinction. So when I first started the big mind process, I didn't make a distinction. Later on, I made a distinction between big mind, big heart, I call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happened in 71 was my heart and mind just opened up yeah. to embrace all right. beings. Infinite, eternal, yeah. the whole thing. The, yeah. whole, the whole thing. Right. And so I did start something around 78, which was a guided meditation where I helped people expand their minds and hearts and open up to include and embrace all the suffering of the universe and all the creations and beings on it and, and on and out and out. And, and I called it a big mind guided meditation. Okay. So big mind's been around a long time. Gotcha. Uh, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi used that term, of course, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. So I was familiar with the term. But it's been around for ages. It's called Daishin, mm-hmm. Great Mind, Big Mind. Um, so I've always been very um, yeah, touched by that name, Big Mind, Big yes. Heart. Yes, yeah. So I had started Voice Dialogue in 1983-4 with Hal Stone. I had done Gestalt back in the 60s, late 60s, 69, 70. Uh, actually with a student of Fritz Perls. Mm, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Harold Oaklander. And in doing the voice dialogue work, which I was doing for 16 years after... Which, which for people, if you don't know what that is, it's where you talk to different aspects of the self. Uh, and, you know, the most we always hear is the inner child is the, the big one that people always talk about. So, you, you you know, you just talk to these different parts of yourself and lots of therapists use it. And so if you've been in therapy, I'm sure your therapist has said, so now let's talk to that little girl in your dream. That's kind of what right. voice dialogue is. That's right. So, That's so, right. So, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So I took the experience and I brought it into the the spiritual world. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, which they don't do in the psychological so I brought it into the transcendent, and I started to ask to speak to the voice of the Buddha. Right. <laughs> you know, or to the voice of the Bodhisattva. You mentioned Bodhisattva a minute ago. Right. Or to big mind, mm-hmm. or uh, to the non-seeking mind. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you mentioned earlier in the in the show, you said, well, for us seekers, all you seekers, right? Yes, yes. Well, yeah, we are seekers. And we never seem to arrive. We never seem to find because we're so identified with being a seeker. Yep. And so I thought, well, why don't we ask to speak to the non-seeker? <laughs> See where you that know? gets us. Well, yeah. And sure enough, the <laughs> non-seeker is right there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I know you know this. Yeah. And when you make that shift, okay, I am the non-seeker. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm having the experience right now. Yeah. You know, there's nothing to look for. There's yep. nothing to seek after. It's striving, all right here. The striving, striving is gone. gone. Yeah. yeah, it all drops away, and you're you're here yeah. now. You know, in the present. And so I started bringing in all the Zen and the koans mm-hmm. and and all of that. You know, the mandos, which are just the stories and everything, uh, into the technique. But I wasn't staying true to voice dialogue because it's not therapy. I'm right. not I'm not a therapist. I'm not doing therapy. Right. I don't do it one-on-one. I do it with groups. You mentioned 100, 200, 300, 400 even. Yep, yep. Not as large as 400 people at a time. 
and bringing them to a state opening, uh, an awakening, where they actually drop themselves, mm-hmm. lose the ego temporarily, yeah. and have an experience of no boundaries. Yeah. So I caught that in 99. I was working with a young man who I liked very much. He'd gone to the local university. And I said, let me speak to uh, Big Mind, please. And uh, there was 80 people in the room, but mm-hmm. I just spoke to him. Yeah. And he was there. Yeah. Oh, wow. What the fuck just happened? <laughs> wow. I mean, I've been teaching now for whatever length of time. That was nearly 30 years. Right. And I never heard such clarity. Right. And I'm going, even in the guided meditation, the big mind guided meditation, not such clarity. Mm-hmm. He was speaking as a Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. And I go, wow. I just hit pay dirt. Mm-hmm. This is, this is gold. This is, this is a vein. Right. Yeah. And so I started playing with it, you know, and I came up with the name. And uh, I realized that why not? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my first experience, I had no background, yeah, no preparation, right. nothing. Right. I wasn't even meditating. I was just sitting right. in the desert. Right. You know, Minding your like, own business. Like an India, Indian style, you <laughs> right, know. Right, right, right. You know about lotus or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I was sitting there contemplating my life, yeah, you know. yeah. And boom, boom. Yeah. So I, why not? Yeah. Why do people need to prepare? Why do they need to build up concentration? Why do they need to do ritual? Why do they need to do now? Sure, to maybe integrate the experience. Yes. To learn to work with it. Yes. Yeah. But not to have the experience. Right. There's no work necessary yeah. to open up. Right. Yeah. In fact, most of the work gets in the way. It becomes a hindrance. So I started seeing that people just off the street, you know, uh, come into the door, know nothing about it. (laughs) And I said, okay, let me speak to big mind or let me speak to the non-seeking mind or or the non-thinking mind. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about meditation and how much the mind comes in. and Mm, The monkey mind. The monkey mind and all that. Well, you know, frankly, uh, the thinking mind doesn't appreciate that. (laughs) The thinking mind doesn't like being called monkey mind. (laughs) You know, this is, wait a minute, I serve you right. very well, yes. you know, and I've, I've been serving you. I've evolved to this point. Yeah, you know, and I've been serving you forever, you know, and I go night and day working for right. you, thinking for you, and the thanks I get, you call me a monkey? Yeah. You know? So guess what? Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to be a monkey. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to play havoc with your meditation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the things I discovered not too many years ago, I think it's three years now, if you ask to speak to the thinking mind Mm -hmm. it actually once you make friends with it Mm -hmm. you know you go to the disowned thinking mind then eventually to the owned embodied and appreciated thinking mind the thinking mind just sits there very quietly prepared to think right right. ready to think right on anything that you want to think about right even creative stuff right you can use you can use it as a tool then exactly yeah because it's not trying to get even with you it's not trying to bombard you with thoughts and sabotage you because it's angry with you yeah. for calling it names or, or and, not being appreciative. And this is and this is just a great overall understanding of how kind of psyche works. I mean, this is very Jungian stuff we're talking about, but you know, if you decide to uh, disown some part of yourself that you don't like, and you know, Robert Bly has that great essay, the long the long bag we drag behind us, or something, which is you know, from day one you start toddling in the world, and someone's saying no to you. Up, oh, put that part of myself in the bag. Put that part of the self, you know, between education and family and culture. 
we have plenty of our parts that we do not love and we are decided that the world doesn't want them. And in order to be good girls and good boys, we put them down in the basement, in the bag, in the shadows. And uh, part of our job as adults is to kind of meet these parts of ourselves, because otherwise they do run the show from the basement or the bag or the whatever, the shadow. And, uh, and I remember when I first started working on my shadow stuff with my therapist and she said, well, you know, everyone has a shadow and you have a shadow. And I thought, oh, I do not have a shadow. I I'm the best daughter and best. I, I sacrifice everything for everyone else. How could I possibly have a shadow? Not really understanding that uh, that meant I probably had a huge shadow <laughs> being such a good girl. Uh, but, but this is part of what you play with and what I, why I love working with you is because you help us go with a, a really safe space into our parts of our psyche that a, we don't like. I mean, I remember doing Big Mind with you once in San Francisco, and you had the uh, sexual deviant or pervert, pervert. come out, and, and you're like, okay, let's all talk to the pervert. And I'm like going, oh, shit. And actually, it was one of the most freeing voices, I, because it's such a shadow voice. It right. is the biggest shadow in our culture right now. Um, and, and so having this safe space to, to, to go to the scary ones like that, but then also the ones that you think – aren't scary and aren't really in your shadow, like the thinking mind, you know, and what we do to it and how we contort it. And then how we, we once we do sit with it and give it some space and say, hey, come on in, let's have some tea. Let's sit down. Here's a cookie. Uh, let's talk a little bit. I'm, I'm your friend. You're my friend. And this relationship, it really <coughs> amazingly shifts. You know, a lot of the work that I do with the big mind is I'll come and sit in the morning out here and we're out of my studio here. It's my multi, my multi-purpose room. And, um, if something's, you know, there's like that ickiness in me, I'll be like, okay, let's just talk to that. Who's that? What do you need? And, and it's been such a help to be able to know that I can go straight to it in this big safe space. And, um, and then, and then have fun with it, you know, do that and then do the side, maybe the opposite side of it to talk to that voice too. Uh, so it's, it is extremely therapeutic beyond the spiritual aspect of it. You, you do offer, I think, people who have a, a healthy ego, a sense of a place to, to work with themselves, you know, that you, you do kind of become your own teacher in that sense. So it's, it's, it's such a beautiful model. It really is a very beautiful, elegant model. And uh, and I know you've pissed a lot of people off with this model <laughs> because in some ways you can't have an opening. I mean, literally, I say to people, uh, you know, and I've helped guide people through this before. And I say, you know, I can get you, you can go have an experience of the mind of the Buddha in, I don't know, in like 12 minutes. Are you interested? And they do. And no, they're not sitting on a cushion for 30 years or 10 years. Um, so so it is an, an amazing thing. But um but it could be like playing with fire a little bit too, I'm guessing. I mean, have you had any experiences where the room is opened up or someone's opened up and it's maybe they didn't have a healthy ego or boundaries and didn't know how to you deal? Know, no. Oh, well, that's, no, that's, I, that's I, wonderful. I, and I know you've maybe, pissed a lot of people off with this model. Ago, <laughs> because in some ways you can't have an opening. I mean, literally, I say to people, uh, you know, and I've helped guys. Uh, so it didn't yeah, help them. Right. I don't think it happened there. Mm -hmm. It came in quite disturbed. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, 
No, I actually haven't. You know, that's people great. warn me about it. And yeah, that's because part of the skepticism yeah. is that you're playing with fire, and yeah. you are. You know, uh, very often I say, you know, Zen's supposed to be the sudden school, but this is really sudden. <laughs> 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 and it has pissed off a lot of people. Yeah, I'm sure. And maybe in some cases, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'm starting to, you know, I spent a lot of time reflecting this last two years. And yeah. I just spent a month uh, reflecting. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I can criticize the process and myself about is maybe sometimes going too fast. Too fast. I, I was talking to a friend of mine who I did a radio show for uh, several months and actually emailed and uh, I asked him I said well how was it and he said well you know it was great for me but a few people said that it was too fast they couldn't follow yeah and what's happened in the last 13 years uh, since I came up with the process I get tired of going back over and over again to yes. the basics you know yeah. to the fundamentals and so what happens is I take them on the fast track. yeah you're like here this is where I'm at this week right. let's go let's go for it right <laughs> you, you said that very well because that's exactly what it is here's where I'm at you're at the, the Olympic sport. swimmer right you know and then and and then I take them to this place you know yeah and uh it's very fast so I'm actually working with myself right now to slow myself down mm-hmm, a little bit mm-hmm. and make sure that I don't go too fast when mm. I've got people like here, like you notice I haven't really introduced the, the process. Right. Because I know it could be pretty fast and yeah. over the radio and so forth. Yeah. And I think in a live event it's you know, it's safer. Yeah. Uh, because I can work with the people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, as you know. It's fun watching you yeah. work with people. And, yeah. And yeah. bring them along so everybody is really there and yeah. it's not dangerous. Yeah. But over the air, I have no control who's listening. Maybe they're driving their car or whatever. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I, do I, not do that. <laughs> and I tell, you know, I'm a wild man. You yeah. Know? My teacher used to say, you're the wild one. You right, know? The right. The wild thing he called me. You right. Know? Because I, I do have that tendency mm-hmm. to just jump in, mm-hmm. you know. So I'm kind of telling myself, slow down a little bit, be careful what the audience, mm-hmm. where they're at, mm-hmm. who's, who's, mm-hmm. who's working. Right. But no, I haven't had any negative experience that's, like that. That's good. Uh, that's good to know. Thank God. You know, yeah. Because, yeah, that could, yeah. could be scary. Um, one of the unique things about you when I started working with you, and this is going to get us really nicely into what we were talking about over breakfast or what we were trying not to talk about so we could talk about it here is um you know there's 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 always and if people who uh know anything about buddhism in the west there's always been a lot of talk about teachers coming from the east and they come to the west and chayam trumpa was a big example of that and things went wild talk about wild man you know i mean sex and drugs and parties and and all sorts of crazy stuff and um, kind of reminds you of your uh, my, growing up. A little of my upbringing, yeah. <laughs> it was the '60s and the '70s then too, wasn't it? Here it was, and um, and it was. It's been such a fascinating experience to to, to be one of your students because uh, when I first started working with you and saw you in person, especially the one thing I said to myself is, "Wow, this guy." This is one of those teachers I've never met a teacher who's so clean before. Who's like his ego. You know, he swears up there and he's, he's not, he's not in robes and he's not pretending like he's some sort of venerable, enlightened being and you're approachable and you're, you crack jokes. You're very funny. Well, because I knew I wasn't. 
<laughs> so, yeah. So you you had a major, I mean, this is a very personal thing. And most of the time, Zen masters don't come out in public and talk about their personal journey of where you've been. But two years ago, almost two years ago, you had a huge fall mm-hmm. in your life. I mm-hmm. mean, you really fell from grace. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, talk. I just, you know, I don't know how much you want to tell the world about it or whatever, but, you know, you were this venerable Zen master. You had thousands of students internationally. You had this huge organization, Big Mind, Big Heart. You were teaching all over the place. You were running these huge weekend retreats with uber rich people. And then you were doing, you know, the Sangha Sunday mornings on video for people who could just pay what they could or nothing and for the whole thing. And revered and, and, and all of that. And, you know, you were kind of a rock star, rock star in the Zen world. And then suddenly something happened and, uh, something went down in Amsterdam. I just heard this, like something went down in Amsterdam and, and suddenly, uh, every, literally everything fell apart in your life. Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you went from a man that everyone, uh, was worshiping as a God to a human being. Very quickly. Well, you know, for me personally, mm. it's probably the best thing that could happen to me. Mm. Um, for a lot of people, it was very painful. Uh, mm. It was painful for me too. Uh, and for a lot of people, it was disappointing. Well, it was disappointing for me too. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like I said, I mean, I knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I knew I was, I was deceiving my wife. I was lying, uh, betraying. Um, and so for me, maybe it wasn't such a shock. Right, because you knew the truth knew, of knew, what was going yeah, on. Yeah, and I knew that I had this double side. This dual life. Yeah. Um, so, but for a lot of people, and I kept telling them, you know, I'm as bad as the baddest, you know, I'm right. as, I'm as, yeah. As low as the lowest, right? Uh, but nobody believed me, right? And you would but, you would say that you would be up there yeah. teaching, and you'd be like, "Yeah, I've I got this shit too in here." All of it, you yeah. Know, if I did the sexual pervert, I can be a sexual pervert. If right. I did the 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 asshole, and I'm an asshole, you know. Right, I, I right. Knew it. Yeah. But you know, there is something about projections, mm-hmm. you know, and transference and all that. And, yeah. Um. So, I allowed and even created this uh, blown up ego mm-hmm. uh, and um, so a lot of people were disappointed and and you were you know you had the titles Zen master right. you were the Zen master that's a big fucking title it really is I mean that's the one when I started reading about Buddhism in my early 20s like oh I want to meet the Zen master guy like like wizard, I'm think uh, like literally a projection in my mind is wizard. You've got the key to the universe, and with a, a simple sentence, you can crack my mind open. That's right, but it doesn't mean you're not fucked up. Right, but that, uh, but but we project onto you this right. perfection. That's right. Um, but you you're know, still a human. Still a human, and you know I've been teaching since and long before any affair started. But I've been teaching since. Um, I think it was 97, what I call the path of the human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I did have this experience in 97 uh, where my ex-wife and I were, at that time, wife and I were sitting in southern Utah. And I realized that 
this is the path to human being. It's not about being a Buddha. Uh, once you're a Buddha, awakened one, you really need to return. Mm-hmm. You know, we call it like a lotus in muddy water, uh, descend the mountain and become just a ordinary fucking human being. Right. You know? Yeah. And so I knew that in 97 and 2006, um, I started a, a teaching of embodying the extremes. Right. All the opposites, you know. And yes. The good and the bad. <laughs> right. You know, all that. And probably took that teaching a little bit off, a little bit missed the mark, mm-hmm. you know, um, by not only embodying it, but actualizing it. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the extremes. Uh, Ethical, not ethical, all of that. Right. You know? Right. Moral, immoral. And uh, went for it. Right. Just went for it. You know, I say I jump into things sometimes without thinking about them. Yeah. I just really dove into that. Uh, so this has been almost two years, as you said, of self-reflection. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did some teaching, but it's been a really time where I've had more reflection than I have since 72. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm even thinking uh, by the end of, well, middle of November, I'm going to take at least a year, mm-hmm. maybe maybe longer retreat uh, to go deeper. Mm-hmm. Because what's happened to me through all this is I have never, ever uh, been so keen on delving deeper. I'm going deeper into myself. Even in 71, it's stronger than that. Mm -hmm. Knowing who I am, taking care of where my shadows are. Right. uh, Undoing where my knots are, removing the barriers, uh, and working on myself. Um, I've spent a lot of time recently doing that. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, uh, I think people think that, or at least, you know, in my mind, that spiritual teachers um, aren't, aren't, you know, aren't living the human life. That they're they're on this kind of other track. Yes. And and yet, when I think about your life and those forty years, um, and and you know, like you were talking, you've talked publicly about how, you know, you've undone everything. I mean, not only are you selling all of your personal, like literal properties, but you've you you you've you know, you're, you're no longer running a Zen center. You no longer the head of this big international organization, you no longer have thousands of students. And it's almost like that, that thing that, you know, people, it's that talking heads life, that talking head song, you know, is this my beautiful house? Is this my beautiful yes. wife? Is this my beautiful sangha? Is this one. my beautiful enlightenment? Right. You know, it was like that, that lifestyle in some, it was a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You bought into it fully. You became very successful at it. And, and like, a lot of people, you know, celebrity, I have a lot of celebrity fan, friends, and we talk about this, it becomes a prison. Right. And so here you were, a man of enlightenment who supposedly broke out of the prison of the mind, but you were living in a prison built by the concept and the wanting of enlightenment. Fascinating to me, just profoundly. And, and I have to tell you what happened to me when I heard about what was going down and uh, A, I thought, oh, fuck. <laughs> really? Really? And then I thought, wow, no one gets off the hook. And it was a profound awakening for me. Mm-hmm. Because even though 
working with you with Big Mind, I I, I think I, I wanted intellectually I got well, you know, it is human beings and it's this enlightenment thing and but the enlightenment isn't this possession to own and all of this kind of stuff. I think a part of me really thought if I worked hard enough at Big Mind hmm. that I would get off the hook of having to be a human being. Mm-hmm. And when you fell from grace and I saw, oh, he's a man who has lust in his heart, <laughs> just like the rest of us, I got, okay, no one gets off the hook if you're in this body. This yeah. is what we're dealing with. Well, you spoke of Trumpa, Chogun Trumpa. Yeah. He said it in a slightly different way. There's no escape. There's no escape. And it's really true. There's no escape. Nobody gets off the hook. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. this thing that we call everyday life, mm-hmm. that we want to pretend that we can go sit on a mountaintop and get away from, this is it. Mm-hmm. This is the work here. And And so if this is the work here, how can that big mind space help us is is it just a bullshit escape is it just a little brain f- game we play with ourselves, or how do we get to really utilize it I, I think that's an excellent question um you know let me say something that i just came up to me a few days ago i had this dream you know and i'm not going to go into the whole dream but i was at a big big Buddhist conference, and I was asked to say something. And what I realized when I woke up and I sat is, you know, we, we talk about taking refuge or, or receiving the precepts, you know, in the three treasures, the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. And uh, one way to look at it is when we take refuge in big mind or Buddha mind, uh, it is a kind of escape mm-hmm. from this everyday reality. But you also could see it as a vacation, a holiday, or time off, yes. you know, or a relief, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. And that we do that uh, every day a little bit. Nice to have you know? that space. So we're escaping in a way. Right. Um, you know, I said it's all a trip, you know, mm-hmm. but you can call it all a journey. We can say it's escape or it's a time off. Mm-hmm. It's how we want to phrase it. My teacher used to say if we say enlightenment, everybody's enlightened. If we say deluded, everybody's deluded, you know? <laughs> You know, whatever word we say, we're all that, right? If we say deluded, we're all deluded. If we say escape, we're all escaping. Mm -hmm. You know, we escape through drinking, drugs, you know, sex, everything. Right. Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. (laughs) Facebook. Um, So taking refuge in the Buddha is that moment, that time, Mm. those 30 minutes or two hours or whatever, time where we're in that space of the transcendent where we go beyond the self the ego or we deal with it you know maybe for some people they're suffering as they sit there and they're suffering with their mind and all that but it's still somewhat of a uh, a respite Mm -hmm. it's uh, taking refuge in our own buddha mind Mm -hmm. taking refuge in the dharma uh maybe that's more like really dharma means all phenomena all teachings, uh-huh, right? Right. Uh, the phenomenal world, the Dharma, and Dharma is the manifestation of Buddha. Right. So maybe that really looking into ourself and some of our shadows mm-hmm. uh, and the aspects of the self that are not developed yet are still immature, and this can be ignored if we just take refuge in the Buddha. You know, right. we can escape that absolutely. But taking refuge in the Dharma really could be seen, I'm just throwing this out as yeah. a possibility, could be seen as going into ourself. 
Yes. Studying the self. Right. Dealing you know, with it. Dealing with it. Yeah. Dealing with our shit. Yeah. You know, because we all have all these voices in us. You know, you mentioned the sexual perverts may be one of the worst, but mm-hmm. uh, so is the narcissist in our society. Yes. You know? Yeah. We're all narcissists. Yep. We're narcissistic. You know, we have a narcissistic voice yep. in us. We have a sexual pervert voice in us. We have an asshole in us. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all that. We're all bitches and bastards. And, <laughs> yep. You know, all of us, you know, and cheats and deceivers and liars and it's we like all, that, we got our stuff. That great Thich Nhat Hanh poem that he wrote, you know, uh, 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 um, t- speak to me what is it my true name where he's on the boat and he is the the rapist he's the girl being raped he's the pirate Absolutely. we're all those people happens to be one i read yeah <laughs> i don't read many poems but yeah, yeah. i read that one yeah call Beautiful. me by my true name yeah, that's what call it me is by my true name. yeah 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 and so maybe taking refuge in the dharma mm-hmm. is exactly that yeah you know looking at our own shit right. looking at our shadows looking where we're stuck untying those knots you know, yeah, um, and then taking refuge in the sangha to me, that's the apex, right? That's the Buddha Dharma. So when you, you when you hold those two in balance, uh, where there's a harmony, mm-hmm. uh, a peace between the taking refuge in the transcendent, right, and then dealing with the shit, the, the human, human, the human, right, the human, right, and you deal with that. Uh, maybe that is the way. Of spirituality and maybe consciousness, yeah. you know, in, in this 21st century and here uh, in the West, but I think it includes the East also, that it's not just going off to a monastery or going off to sit in a mountain or sit in a cave. Right. As, or once you're enlightened, you know, because I know one of the things you've talked about is, you know, if you, if you just go to the enlightened side, you don't realize all of the uh, insanity that you've left behind in your rearview mirror. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which was rather ironic of you to be saying at the time, actually, now that I think about it. So what have you discovered, um, you know, because of this awakening, this other, this new version of this ordinary awakening you're having? Oh, shit, I'm a human being. I, I, I did leave a bunch carnage. of carnage in, in, in the rearview mirror here by, by becoming the Zen master and, and, and having that role. Mm-hmm. Um, what voices have you discovered that were in shadow that you were not taking care of? Oh, God, a bunch of them. Uh, the main one for me is guilt. Ah. Uh, you know, Jewish parents. Yeah, right. right. I don't want to blame my parents, but, you know, I was told that, you know, the fact that it took them 10 years to get pregnant was my fault. Right. <laughs> and that they had three miscarriages. So, so you coming know, in, you were fucked, basically. <laughs> <laughs> why they couldn't have a baby. And then I, it took 72 hours for me to come out. My mother was in 72 right, hours. Right, then right. she was deathly ill and was <sighs> hospitalized right. for seven weeks right. and separated from her. So her you had this big pile mood. of guilt handed to you right yeah, away. Yeah, and so I, I, you know, I did what we all probably do with that much guilt. Yeah. I suppressed it. Yeah. You know, I denied it. I ignored it. Uh, so you didn't know how to have a healthy relationship with guilt? No, I didn't. Right. And so the last two years have been a lot about working on that. And I don't say I'm finished mm-hmm. by any means. Mm-hmm. I'm still working on it. It's a work in progress and so am I. So guilt is, is a huge one. Entitlement. Mm. It's huge. Mm. It's huge in the Buddhist world. Mm. I see it in myself. I see it in students. We think, uh, I've given up my life for the sake of the Dharma or right. for the sake of the Buddha. So aren't I special? Aren't I entitled? Entitled. 
Aren't I entitled? Yeah. Because I'm doing the real work. I'm doing the real work. There are people out there who pay a lot of money, you know, right. to get the teaching. Right. That's not the real work. I've given my life to it. Right. 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 You know, uh, I'm entitled. Mm. For me, it was entitled to some pleasure, entitled to this, you know, whatever. Right. right. So that's, that's another one. Uh, the My internal mother and father uh, have been huge for me mm. to get in touch with that. When I say or ask to speak to my mother, it's not my biological mother only. I need to talk to her, too. But I also need to talk to my internal mother, who loves me unconditionally, who doesn't fall into and have all the shit. Right, have her own own issues. Her baggage. Her baggage, right. right? The personal And the same with the father. And the father has allowed me, the internal father, to get in touch with what some people might call God, uh, a personal God Mm -hmm. that I couldn't relate to. Mm. Being raised an atheist and agnostic, <laughs> sure. You know, how, how do you relate to having this personal God that's just there loving you? Yeah. Well, my father, internal, right? Yeah. Who could art in heaven? You know, only right, within, right. You know, he loves me unconditionally. You know, he doesn't have ten trillion uh, children. He has just one child. Yeah. You know, this is great because about six months ago, I did some work with my coach, uh, and we did some work. And I, I got to experience, you know, obviously, I've got a lot of baggage with my personal father. <laughs> Bless his soul. Uh, but there's a, there's a lot there, a lot there to work around. And I got to have an experience with that pure father internally that is just there for me. That's right. And is waiting to answer my questions, to sit with me if I need wisdom or not, is not distracted by his work, is not being pulled by the culture or fans. Uh, And and that huge healing for me in that way. And I think that's the shift that I've made this year, too, is there's something healed. It must be in the air because this came to me on December 31st. Mm, mm, Yeah. 2011. Yeah. Yeah. The internal mother, internal father. Yeah. And it was huge for me. Yeah. So those are some other shadows that I've been working on. There are many right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are a few. It's unending, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. You know, my mentor, Hal Stone, uh, says he's 84. He says, you know, it just gets better and better. Yeah. Gets better and better, richer and richer, because it is unending mm-hmm. and it's endless processing. You know, one of the things I was reading one of your blog posts uh, about this personal journey, and you've written a couple of personal blog posts about this, but one of them you talked about this sense of, um, I can't remember the exact phrase you use, but it's it's about being there for others and how, you know, this 40 years that you've had and this, this walk through this, um, you know, amazing trip, journey, uh, led you more and more to this higher and higher place in the, in these organizations. And, and so there was this part of you that was, you were, you were the teacher. So you were always the teacher, which means you were always had a student that, you know, because with teacher comes student. And, um, you know, I've been hanging around with a lot of comedians the last four years and one of the struggles I've had and one of the things I'm just starting to get on stage for myself is that the more I commit to this is about connecting deeply to me and what I have to express and who I need to be right now, the the, the freer I am and the more powerful my work is and the more grounded I feel. 
And my whole life, I've been doing it for everyone else. Right. Who do I need to be for my dad? Who do I need to be for my mom? Who do, who does, who do my dad's fans need me to be? Who does the culture, what, is, what does the world need right now? What is, I'm going to step into that role. And that completely disempowered me by doing it that way. And actually, the more selfish I get in some ways, the healthier I'm feeling. And my dad used to say to his uh, on stage, you know, you're not here for me. Uh, you know, you're not here for yourself. You're here for me. And I'm here for me. Actually, no one's here for you today. (laughs) (laughs) And I used to think, Oh, dad, that's so narcissistic. I'm going to go hide under a rock right now. But from kind of an enlightened place, I get that now. And is that what you're discovering? Maybe is that part of it? Yeah. Um, I think that's what the West has to offer. Yes. You know, to me, yeah. this is a, an amazing time of East meeting West, and all this is going on, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's pretty uh, global. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, I think the East has something to really offer, which yeah. is the transcendent. Yeah. Right? Uh, I think the West has something to really offer, which is around the human realm. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and really, what exactly what you're talking about, you know, Having a healthy ego, an aware, healthy ego. You know, in Zen, we say there's no ego, you mm-hmm. know, or the ego is, is um, you know, an illusion. Right. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of denial of ego, and yet we're some of the most egoistic people on the planet, you know, <laughs> yeah. Zen masters and Zen teachers and all of us, you know, yeah. Buddhist teachers and uh, spiritual leaders, and I mean, we're all narcissists, and we're yeah. all egomaniacs. But at least the person on the stage knows that they have an ego, yes, and they've been hired to go out there, and the light is on them, right. and they're allowed to own it. Right. Whereas that's the, Buddha, the key. Yeah, the Buddha teacher is not allowed that's to right. own it. That's yeah. right. Right. And so that's the key, and uh, that's what the West, I think, really one of the areas the West really has something to offer this mutual integration yeah. of East and West. And you know, I, I plan to probably talk about. I'm at a place right now where it doesn't sound like it because I'm talking a lot, but <laughs> I'm actually at a place where I really want to walk my talk. I, yeah. I really want to yeah. stop writing and stop talking mm-hmm. for a period of time and live it. And integrate. And live it. Yeah. Know, yeah. Integrate. Yeah. Manifest it. You know, yeah. I've known for more than 40 years that you can have these experiences, but how do you live them? Yep. And I realized then it was going to take time. I didn't realize how much time. <laughs> and I realized it was going to be difficult. I didn't realize how, how difficult. difficult. Yeah. But it's just, I'm at a place right now, I'm, I'm tired of hurting people. Yeah. I'm really tired of that. Yeah. I'm tired of being inflated. Mm. I'm just sick of it. Mm. And I just want to be myself mm. and just be a human fucking being, mm. you know, and just live the teachings yeah. really live it and that's what my dream was about mm. it was just live it rather than talk about it and rather than be judgmental and all this just manifest it just shut up and live it yeah and that's kind of where i'm at mm. so i will be doing a lot less teaching mm. and probably a lot less writing mm. and uh, just working on myself it's beautiful i can't wait to see what comes out on the other end of that Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dennis. All right, Kelly, thanks. So that was my interview with uh, Gempa Roshi from today, earlier today, um, this morning, actually. He was here in the studio. And uh, wow, that end there really touches me. His eyes welled up, and uh, I I really felt his heart. He's a human being who... uh, 
is just trying to find his way, just like the rest of us. Imagine that, the Zen master, just trying to find his way. It gives me... uh it just it gives me a lot of space to be a human being. You know, we we walk around with a lot of perfectionism in this culture. I know I walk around a lot in my mind. And uh you know, those media images of who we're supposed to be, how much money's supposed to be in the bank, how skinny we're supposed to be, what kind of car we're supposed to drive, what kind of morals we're supposed to have, who are we supposed to be helping? how much work we're supposed to be doing to save the planet. And um, it's a lot. There's a lot of voices in our head telling us that we're a piece of shit for not doing more. And, uh, and you know, hey, we all have more to do. I'm not saying we don't have more to do, but um, there's something about just stopping the striving, stopping playing the roles that we find ourselves in what would it be like to stop trying to please everyone through all the roles that we have and just to show up and see how that works um as uh dennis said to uh to just walk the talk so uh and dennis gimple roshi and i covered a lot of things in that talk we we covered a lot of uh buzzwords and and aspects of zen and and things like that um so there's a lot of resources you could go to certainly um if you're interested in gempo roshi's work with big mind uh go to bigmind.org there's some videos on there uh he has accessed i think to some cds and some dvds there it's powerful powerful work I'm not kidding you. You will, if you're, if you're a little fascinated by this kind of stuff, you will walk into the mind of the Buddha. Uh, it's profound, profound awakenings can happen and integrating them does take time, but, uh, you can get a glimpse of, of what the hell all those mystics have been talking about for thousands of years and, uh, and, and do it in a really cool way. Uh, his mentor, Hal Stone, he mentioned, is a man who, who came up with this idea of voice dialogues. Uh, you can f- absolutely look for Hal, and I think his wife is Sidra, Sidra Stone, voice dialogues. You can, you can Google that. Um, and, uh, check that out. And of course, you're, if you're interested in just basic writings about this kind of stuff, Alan Watts is great. There's a, a ton of podcasts, free podcasts to listen to Alan Watts. KPFK and KPFA has a lot of archives about Alan Watts, who talks a lot about Zen and the Zen mind and, and Zen point of view. Um, and of course, there's just a, a lot of books out there about it. I highly recommend it. But of course, reading it is only uh, the finger pointing at the moon, as they say, or, um, you know, as you as they also say, you can't eat the menu. So it's it's just a lot of language about what it is. But it's it's fascinating stuff. It's it's fun to think about. Um, so, uh, I, I hope you delve into some of that stuff. It's been very satisfying for me. Uh, get my work with Gempo Roshi has been, uh, helped me made some profound shifts. I, I use it a lot. I haven't, I haven't lately used it daily, but sometimes I use it daily with my sitting meditation and, and do some of the voice, do, voice dialogue work with myself. You can become pretty adept at it if, you know, if you know what you're doing. Um, and, uh, so I, so I hope you, I hope you look into it. And, but really, I, you know, it's the human stuff. We're all on a big human journey here and, and we forget about that. So, 
Uh, so thank you. Thanks for uh, for listening today about that. So uh, next week, I think we're going to have a call-in show. So look for my uh, uh, tweets and my Facebook page about the phone number. It's my Skype number. I don't remember it right now because <laughs> I'm not really a professional radio person. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. But in, uh, please call in next week. I think oh, that's Ned. Ned's calling in right now. Thank you, Ned. That's that's very helpful during my live uh, podcast right now. Uh, and so call in next week. I think that actually the topic is going to be failure, which is uh, something we talk, talk, kind of touched on today. Um, also, this Sunday on Sirius XM is my show, The Kelly Carlin Show, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern. I've got Greg Proops, uh, and it's on uh, replays all week on uh, Carlin's Corner. Uh, channel 400. So check that out if you've got Sirius XM. It's a great, great fucking conversation with Greg Proops. I mean, you guys know Greg Proops. He is the smartest man in the world. We had a great time. Uh, last night, I taped uh, an interview uh, talk with Jay Moore for his podcast. That'll be up in a few weeks. And August 30th, uh, I'll be uh, doing my show, A Carlin Home Companion again at Santa Monica Playhouse. <laughs> Ned. And I can't yell at him because I'll just yell into the mic and it'll like freak your freaking ears out. So I'm not going to do that. So instead, I'm going to mute myself right now. Uh, I want to thank everyone at Smodcast for carrying this podcast and carrying me along. I truly do appreciate it. Um, and, uh, you know, Kevin Smith's uh, great heart and a great soul. So I want to thank him. And we're going to end today with my friend Eric Schwartz's song, uh, Better Man, because uh, his song is is really what uh, Dennis Merzel, a.k.a. Gempo Roshi, is really dealing with. And uh, I just love this song of Eric's. Uh, check out Eric Schwartz on YouTube and Facebook and the Twitter. Uh, and you guys all have a great week. And uh, we'll talk next week. One, two, three. There is one whom I have wronged, and he looks at me angrily. This bothers me. No matter what I do, I offer my apologies. Always he ignores my pleas But I ask myself What the better man would do He would forgive me So I'll forgive me too There have been so many times That I have felt so low I would rather die than look at me someone else's view And always there were those who would gladly tell me I'm no good But I ask myself what the better man would do He would love me so I will love me too I've been ashamed the life that I've been living Take my hand Tell me I'm forgiven
that I've been living so Take my hand And tell me I'm forgiven So if you're walking down the street And you see a soul who's in defeat Don't you pass him by No matter what you do Don't you understand That when you land A helping hand The person that you really help Is you, yeah Love your neighbor And he will love you too If you do the things If you do the things you do things the better may will do This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Prepare to be smotivated by Smodcast.com's guru of gab, Kevin Smith. Pick up his new book, Tough Shit, Life Advice from a Fat Lazy Slob Who Did Good. Available now in hardcover, enhanced, digital, and audiobook. Learn who inspired Kev and be inspired to follow your dreams. It's like a Tony Robbins seminar on steroids, and with a lot more fucking profanity. Neil Gaiman says, I suspect at that Kevin Smith is what all gods and demons aspire to be. And Tim Burton says, I certainly would never read anything written by Kevin Smith. Pick up Tough Shit, Life Advice from a Fat Lazy Slob Who Did Good by Kevin Smith. Available every goddamn where.